0: Galatians is a letter from Paul to the churches of Galatia. The content that we see throughout it is justification by faith. And the word justified simply means a person can have their life right with God. How do I get my life right with God? It's by faith. It's by putting your trust, your belief in Jesus Christ. The occasion for the letter, it's a lot like 2 Corinthians in that Paul had come in, he had planted churches, he had preached the gospel of grace, but then there were those that came in behind him and started to mix the law with the grace that he had given. Many commentators refer to these guys as the Judaizers, those who would come in. They're potentially, uh, possibly Jewish believers that are having a hard time letting go of the old covenant law. To me, that's kind of understandable. It must've been challenging at that beginning, the early years of the church for uh, the believers who uh, were primarily Jewish in the very beginning, coming in and uh, having this salvation be totally 100% by grace and uh, not according to the law of Moses. I want to read you a couple of quotations in our introduction here from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. It says, Galatians was written to remedy a desperate situation to call early Christians back from the Mosaic Law or the Law of Moses to grace, from legalism to faith. It is an emphatic statement of salvation by faith apart from works and is as relevant today as when it was originally penned. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. One of the key verses in the book is the just shall live by faith. We've heard that scripture before. It's quoted from the Old Testament prophet prophet Habakkuk. It's quoted three times in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, here in Galatians and also in the book of Hebrews. And when you think about it, the just, as we're talking about justification by faith, being right with God by faith, the just, those who are right with God, they will live, they will have life, not by trying really hard or the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's like the key message that we see coming through this. Galatians was key during the Reformation. Uh, John MacArthur's commentary in his introduction says of Galatians, it was the cornerstone of the Protestant Reformation because its teaching of salvation by grace alone became the dominant theme of the preaching of the reformers. Martin Luther being one of those reformers in the preface to his commentary on the book of Galatians, it says the epistle to the Galatians was a favorite of Luther's. Luther said, it is my... Katie Von Bora, that was his wife. (laughs) So it's like I'm married to this book. This is my life right here. He found in it a source of strength for his own faith and life and an armory of weapons for his reforming work. And so doctrinally, what we see in the book of Galatians is we see salvation and we also see sanctification. So we see salvation, salvation by grace alone, again the just shall live by faith, their trust in God's favor extended to them. But we also see sanctification, and the idea there is how to how to live the Christian life. Just like we're saved by God's favor, <laughs> the living out of the Christian life is by God's favor as well. There's no way we can do it apart from him and his enabling. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we'll be talking about that as we go through the book. So let's go ahead and jump into the greeting, Galatians chapter 1, beginning from verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Paul is the author of this letter. Paul was Jewish, he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He was raised at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He was a Pharisee, he was one of the religious leaders. And um, as a Pharisee, you know, we think of the Pharisees in the New Testament and uh, a lot of times Jesus uh, spoke of them and against them and rebuking them. For their hypocrisy the apostle paul on the other hand i i don't know if he would necessarily fit in that category as a hypocrite in a pharisee he he was very um, focused on his religion he was very zealous for his belief in the the true and the living god according to judaism and because he was so zealous for his faith he persecuted the church He saw Christians as heretics, he saw them as blasphemers, and so he really sought to destroy the church. He was saved, as recorded in Acts chapter 9, as he's on the way to Damascus to arrest believers, to bring them back before the religious council so that they can be tried for being blasphemers. But it was there that Jesus got a hold of his life and his life was never the same after that. And he gave himself 100% to building the church he once tried to destroy. And so we see him going on three missionary journeys. Those are recorded in the book of Acts that records the first 30 years of the early church. And it's referred to as the Acts of the Apostles. And uh, in reality, it's focusing on, on what God did through Peter and what he did through Paul. But it was those first 30 years after Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and then the gospel began to spread. And so he spread the gospel in what would be present-day Turkey and also present-day Greece. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He was shipped off to Rome where he was under house arrest. And it was during those missionary journeys and during the time that he was under house arrest that he wrote... Uh, a number of the letters that we have in our Bible. Um, He would be released. It's believed that after he was released, and of course, this would be according to church tradition because the account in the book of Acts only takes us up to those two years that he was in prison in Rome, but according to church history or church tradition, it's believed that he was released and he continued to travel and that he wrote the pastoral letters, which would be his letters to Timothy and also to Titus. He was then rearrested, taken back to Rome. This time he's not under house arrest in his own rented corners, but this time he's in a dungeon and he will suffer execution. He will be martyred. He will be beheaded for his faith in Jesus Christ. And so he wrote during that time window, 13 or 14 of the 27 New Testament letters that we have in our Bible. So it's half the New Testament. And the reason I say 13 or 14 is because the book of Hebrews is the one that would be in question as to who wrote it, who the human author uh, is, not so much is it inspired, because it's believed to be inspired of God, uh, as all the letters or the books we have in the Bible. But the question is just on who the author is. If you notice in Galatians, the very first word is Paul. If you go to every single one of his letters in the New Testament, that's the first word that we have, and that's the word Paul. Until you get to the book of Hebrews, and the first word we have is the word God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to the fathers in time past by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. And so is that written by Paul? Why wouldn't he put his name if that was the case? And I think maybe part of the reason why would be he's writing to the Hebrews. He's writing to his fellow countrymen. And just as he used to look at Christians, as heretics and blasphemers, now his fellow countrymen are looking at him that way. So if they open up this letter and they see Paul's name, they're just gonna close it and say, forget about it. And so maybe, maybe Paul is the author, and maybe that's why he didn't have his name right out of the gates there. It says here in the first verse, Paul, an apostle. Now, a number of the times that he begins his letters, I would say I think the majority of the times he identifies himself as an apostle. Sometimes he identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I I think the the content kind of dictates how he uh, um, not addresses himself, but presents himself at the beginning of the letter. An apostle, this is from Strong's Concordance, it means a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. This is from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. The word apostle connotes authority and refers to a person who has a right to speak for God as his representative or delegate. So you can see with there being trouble in the camp in Galatia, with the Judaizers coming in wanting to turn the Christians from a gospel of grace to a gospel of law, that he would come forth as an authoritative voice to be able to speak on behalf of God. Maybe the closest word that that we have would be the word ambassador, something like that. So he starts off, notice Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. There was not an ecclesiastical body that ordained Paul to go out into the ministry. It wasn't Peter, James, or John that laid hands on him and said, Go out into the ministry. It was Jesus that got a hold of his life and commissioned him to go out, and Paul's life was never the same after that Damascus Road experience. As he was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, it says that a light came down from heaven that was brighter than the noonday sun. He fell to the ground, he was blinded, and then the voice began to speak to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And he said, what do you want me to do? He says, go into the city, it'll be told you what you must do. So Jesus Jesus had been the one that had saved him and grabbed the hold of his life to use him in a profound way to proclaim the gospel before kings and before the Gentiles and before the Jews. While Paul is recounting this experience before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said that Jesus said this to him. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have, you have seen and of the things, notice, which I will yet reveal to you. So Paul's an apostle. He's an ambassador, a delegate sent forth, not by a commission from a church, but by Jesus himself. And as Jesus says, I'm, I'm making you a minister. The idea is simply a servant. You're gonna be a servant of the Lord and not just a minister, but also a witness. And that's the Greek word martis from which we get our word martyr. You're gonna testify of the gospel up to the point and including death, giving your own life. You're gonna go forth, and he's being sent as it goes on to say, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Paul himself was a Jew, but his ministry primarily was to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, and God would see him through all the way up until it was time to bring him home as he would go through and preach the gospel. And notice what he would preach, the effect of it. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You're set forth to open their eyes, just like Paul was physically blinded, It kind of represented the fact that he was spiritually blind at that time as well. And so he's sent forth to open their spiritual eyes, if you will. Second Corinthians chapter four says, it's the God of this age that has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. You know, it's funny, before I was a Christian, I thought I was the captain of my own ship, the master of my own destiny. But I realize that I was just a puppet and Satan was the one pulling the strings. So he's being sent forth to open their eyes, to turn them from the darkness, the darkness being that metaphor for what, that which is evil and brought to the light. Remember Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world, to bring them out of the power that Satan has over their lives and bring them to God. So notice that they may receive forgiveness of sins, And this is the key thing for us to be able to come to God is to have our sins forgiven. And as that that offer of salvation and forgiveness is extended to us, something that we don't deserve, but it's extended to us, when we receive that, we're not only forgiven, but notice what it goes on to say. It speaks of an inheritance. You become an heir, an heir of God an heir of the eternal kingdom. Now, all of us have parents, and we're all been probably heirs of their estate. And if your parents don't have anything, it doesn't mean a whole lot, does it? You know, Sometimes it's taken over the bills they couldn't pay off. But being an heir of God, that's pretty big, all right? That's pretty huge, and that's, that's who you are. So you're not only forgiven, you're adopted into the family of God. That's the key thing there. And notice among those who are sanctified, set apart to live for the Lord, by faith in me. And that brings us back to salvation again. How's a person saved? It's by faith in Jesus Christ. His grace extended us receiving that, again, by faith. So again, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Right out of the gates, first verse, the resurrection. This was the central theme that was preached by the apostles of the early church, that Jesus is alive. And friends, Christianity stands or falls on the truth of the resurrection. We serve a risen Savior. He's alive. Amen? Amen. So Paul identifies himself, and then verse 2, and all the brethren who are with me, and then the recipients of the letter to the churches of Galatia. Now, Galatia is part of what would be modern-day Turkey, And this is a slide of Paul's first and second missionary journeys. On his first missionary journey, he went through the area of Southern Galatia, which would again be in present-day Turkey, and established churches in Pisidian Antioch and also in Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And then when he started his second missionary journey, as you can see, he went right back through that region as he's on his way through Turkey to ultimately go into Europe and to take the gospel to Greece. And so he began to strengthen the churches after they were once established. If you also notice the region of Galatia, according to this map anyway, goes way up into the north. And so you might read in your study Bible that he's writing to the churches in the Southern Galatian region. You might read in your study Bible that he's writing to the churches in the Northern Galatian region. There's two theories on who he's writing to. the, the, the Bible reader's companion made the comment that the majority of scholars believe it's the Southern region, but that's according to them, you know what I mean? The majority is, is kind of relevant, uh, relative, isn't it, on how many commentaries or scholars you're looking at. Personally, that makes the most sense to me because that's where he established these churches and that's where he went back through, it seems, and strengthened these churches. So he's writing to these particular believers concerning this issue that went on in his first missionary journey. I don't know how well you can see from where you're sitting, but if you look back into the purple to your right, that's Cilicia. So that's where Paul was born. That's where he was from, Tarsus in Cilicia, if you can make that out on the map. And then if you go even further back into the yellow, you can see Antioch in Syria. This was like the home base for Paul's missionary journeys. He began and ended many of his missionary journeys in Antioch of Syria. There was a very strong Christian presence there. And so he would go forth and preach the gospel to these areas. And now he is writing this letter, notice not to the church of Galatia, like when we went through Corinthians, it was written to a single church that was in the city of Corinth. But here he's writing to the churches plural that's in the region of Galatia, because there were a number of churches that he had established there. And again, the reasoning for what he's writing is to counter the heresy that was coming in through the Judaizers, which we'll be talking about more as we go through the letter. So Paul identifies himself as the author and then he identifies the recipients. And then there's the typical introductory greeting. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, this is very familiar to us because we've read it before, grace and peace. It's in every single one of Paul's letters. He starts every one of them that way. You know, back in the day when we used to write letters, anybody remember that? (laughs) Back before texting, messaging, even before email, we'd get out the the pen and the paper and the postage stamp. And we would usually start it by uh, identifying who we were writing to, dear Bobby you know? And then then we would have a typical opener, wouldn't we? Hope all is well. Hope you're doing good. And then at the end of the letter is when we would sign it. In this day, it was a little different. You would identify the writer of the letter first, like Paul did, Paul, and then the recipients of the letter. And then again, the typical greeting that we have here, grace and peace. Every one of Paul's letters, you have grace and peace right in the opening area of the letter, even in the pastorals, but he adds mercy, grace, mercy, and peace. To the pastors for, for uh, whatever reason that might be. Uh, they need God's mercy, um, maybe more. So grace and peace. Grace was the common Greek greeting. The Greek word is charis. It would be kind of like if you lived in Hawaii, aloha, you know, so you would meet one another charis, And it means favor. You take it into the arena of salvation, it means favor that is, that is not merited. There's nothing you can do to earn that favor. So it, it has the idea of favor. It has the idea of, of blessing. It has the idea of something beautiful. And so you're, you're, you're kind of wishing blessings on the person as you speak the word charise. And then, of course, peace. Remember, again, that Paul is Jewish. The Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom. And that would be the common Hebrew greeting. Now, this is written originally in Greek. So the word for peace wouldn't be shalom in the Greek text. It would be Irene. But I think the idea here is he's sending forth grace and peace, the common Greek, the common Hebrew greeting, and the bestowers of that grace and peace are God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's significant too, as many point out, that it's always grace and peace. It's never reversed. It's never peace and grace, but grace and peace. And I think the significance is, again, grace is unearned favor, and God extends to us his favor. And when we receive, that unearned favor, it's then that we can have not only peace with God, but we can have the peace of God in our lives. When I say peace with God, the Bible teaches that we're all sinners, we're separated from Him. The Bible teaches that we're His enemies before we become believers. When we receive His favor, His forgiveness, we, we now have peace with Him. And not only peace with Him, but we can have His peace in our lives, that peace that passes all human understanding why because he's present in us now his holy spirit resides within us so no matter what happens what comes in our lives we can have that peace inside of our life like i mentioned notice that the bestowers of the grace and peace it says not just god the father but also the lord jesus christ this is a subtle testimony to the deity of jesus that he's more than just a man or a good teacher or a great prophet but he is coupled here with God the Father as the bestowers of that grace that brings salvation and that peace that passes all human understanding. And in speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins. He gave himself. That's grace. That's true grace, favor extended to us. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that, that he gave. Here we're reading of Jesus that he gave himself. He gave himself for our sins. It's the reason that he died. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, notice, the just for the unjust. He is the just, we are the unjust. The reason that he suffered and died was for us, not for himself. Notice that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive <clears throat> excuse me, by the Spirit. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. He suffered once for sins that he might bring us to God. This was his purpose in coming. This was the reason for the sacrifice. Notice again in verse 4. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age giving himself for our sins to deliver us. It's sin that separates us from God. That's the whole reason that we need to be forgiven. In Isaiah chapter 59, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's what separates us from God. That's why we need our sin dealt with. We need atonement, we need forgiveness, we need it taken out of the way. And again, this is why Jesus came. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us. The word deliver means to rescue, that he might rescue us from this present, notice, from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. His sacrificial death, it offers to us salvation, but it also offers more than that. As a believer, we not only have the hope of heaven, but we also have his presence in our life right now. We also have the ability to have a life that's worth living. You guys know that life can really stink sometimes, amen? Amen. Jesus makes a way so that we can have a life. That doesn't mean everything's perfect, right? We're still gonna suffer, we're still gonna go through difficulties, but we don't go through those difficulties alone. That's the key thing. The storms will still come. It's not like he's taking the storm away, but he's giving us the ability to rise above the storm and walk on water in victory, amen, all right? And that's what Jesus gives us. He gives us a life, a life of fullness and satisfaction. Uh, Let's see, his expositor's commentary says, believers are not rescued out of the present evil world, though that will also be true eventually, but from the power of evil, and the values of the present world system through the power of the risen Christ within the Christian. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in John chapter 10, where he said, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Guys, the devil wants to rip us off. He wants to wipe us out. Jesus has come not only to give us life, we not only have that hope for eternity, but he's come to give us abundant life in the here and now. And this is where the answer is. You might say, well, I've tried that. You know what? It's not in trying it. (laughs) It's in living it. It's in a relationship with Jesus Christ, amen. And that's one of the key things we're going to see as we go through this letter. It's not about a system of works. I'm trying to be good enough. It's about a relationship and having a relationship where God is working in your life. And as you yield your life to him and follow his plan for your life, that's where true satisfaction that's where true joy is going to come. So I totally get it. You know, I know there's times where I'm like, man, this stinks and everything, what's wrong? Oftentimes I'm the reason that's wrong. You know, I've drifted away from the Lord and I'm, I'm filling myself with stuff that's taking me down rather than stuff that's b- building me up. And this is gonna be one of the themes that we're gonna see going through this letter. It's a relationship. It's a, a relationship that needs to be nurtured. And as we're living the life, That's where the satisfaction, the abundant life that he spoke of, that's how it's gonna be lived out. That's how it's gonna be realized. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? All right, (laughs) it's true. All right, so and notice, and I'll probably come back to this before we, when we close, this is the will, end of verse four, the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. I believe this is what God wants for each one of our lives. He wants us to experience that abundant life, being delivered from this present evil age that just wants to drag us down so bad, so desperately. So Paul here, the ambassador, commissioned by the resurrection, resurrected Jesus, the bestower of grace and truth. Here at this point in most of his letters, typically would be the part where he would bring the thanksgiving to the church. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, making mention of you in my prayers doesn't do that in Galatians. In fact, again, John MacArthur makes the point that Galatians is the only one of Paul's letters that gives no word of commendation to its readers. He goes right to the rebuke, and we'll go on from verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you And want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, those who would trouble you, scholars refer to these as the Judaizers, Jews who embraced Christianity, but again, just had a really hard time letting go of the law. It's like they wanted the people, if they were gonna become Christians, they, they wanted them to become Jews first, if you will to uh, proselytize and to convert into the Jewish faith. Circumcision, the dietary law of Moses, keeping the laws. And yes, believe in Jesus, absolutely. And so it's the mixture of law and grace. And notice how bad Paul attacks that. I mean, this is huge. This isn't just like a little thing. This is really big that he lays down here. He starts by saying, I marvel, not just that this is happening, but that it's happening so soon. You know, they're turning away so quick from, notice it's not just a doctrine either. It's not, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from this teaching on the gospel of grace, but notice in verse six, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from, from him. You're turning away from God, you know? And it's mind-blowing to him, if you will. How can you do that? Why would you do that? It's not just a doctrine, not just a teaching, but God himself. Expositor says, embracing legalism means rejecting God, because it means substituting a human being for God in one's life. Turning away from him, the one who called you in grace. The Judaizers they presented works, but the gospel is the gospel of grace. Works appeals to our flesh, it does. And I don't, I don't just mean in the sense of flesh in that we're prone to wanna go sin and do wrong things, but we wanna earn it, we wanna make our own way. And it's talking of salvation right here, We'll talk about sanctification as the letter continues. I remember in my own life when I was first a Christian that I was a legalist and I was trying to live the life by being obedient to rules. And I I was, I kind of remind myself as I've been studying this about Paul, how he was a very committed Pharisee, very committed legalist, that's how I felt. It wasn't like I wanted to to live a half-hearted Christianity and sin and all of this. I wanted to be, I was very zealous for it. But I was a legalist and I was miserable. I was miserable for two years because you can't live the Christian life in your own strength. That's not what the Christian life is. It's not about trying really hard to be good and then "Ah, I'm a Christian, I'm doing the right thing. Christianity, again, it comes back to a relationship with God. What does that mean? It means spending time with him in prayerfully reading his word. This is how we hear from him. This is how we hear what he's like, what he thinks of us, what his plan is for our life. And we can pour out our heart before him. And you know that this book is not just an old history book, right? This book is alive and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword. And it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And God speaks from his word. He gives us those nuggets, he places them under the surface. And when we dig, when you search for him with all of your heart, that's when you're going to find him. If we try and do it in our own strength, we don't say, God, I don't need you. We're basically saying, God, I'm trying to do the best I can. We miss it that way. It's about crying out to him. So what does that mean on a daily basis? It means, God, I'm struggling with this attitude that I have, I'm struggling maybe with this addiction that I have, God, I can't do it on my own. And it's about crying out to him. I mean, there's times in our lives when we're going through such things that it's not just a daily thing we do. It's a moment by moment thing we do where we can make it maybe two hours, maybe only an hour and a half, and we're falling on our face again going, God, I need your help if I'm gonna be able to make it through this situation. And that's what Christianity is. It's a relationship. And as we go through this book, we're gonna see he gives us the leading by his spirit and he gives us the ability His Spirit to live the lives that He wants us to live, and so I marvel. He says that you're turning away so soon from the One who called you in this grace. In Galatians chapter five, I say then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. The idea of walking in the Spirit, walk is to order your manner of life. This is how you live. You walk in the spirit. Well, what does that mean? It means by yielding your life to the direction God is leading you. I'm living my life according to his leading rather than the temptations that are coming in my life or the flesh that's pulling me to do things that are contrary to what God wants me to do. And there's a battle going on. And we're gonna see that as we go through this book, a battle between the flesh and the spirit. In order for us, To be strong and overcome we need to feed the spiritual man and that's what we're doing now that's what we need to continue to do in order to be strong and so again marveling that they're turning away from him who called you in the grace of christ into verse 6 he says to a different gospel verse 7 which is not another this isn't another gospel because the word gospel means what It, it ain't good news if you're getting law It ain't good news if you're hearing, hey, if you work really hard, you're gonna be accepted by God and you get to be saved. That's not a gospel. He says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. The idea is to twist it and to be fooled by it and to distort the message that is coming forth. We dealt with this to a degree in Corinthians, didn't we? Now, this is before... Paul's trip on his second missionary journey and the issues that were happening there, but it was much the same just a few weeks ago when we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he said, for if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. I don't know why, but he had those that would come from without or those rising up from within that would just wanna turn people away from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he extends to us forgiveness, that we can have life through that. So he says it's a different gospel, which really is not another. And there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on to say in eight and nine, notice, but if we, or an angel from heaven, verse nine, or anyone, so notice Paul includes himself in that group. You know, If I come back and I'm preaching a different gospel than I preached the first time, the the bottom line is don't listen to me. So he includes himself. If we or an angel from heaven, remember Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, as do his ministers. So if we or an angel from heaven, and then he just sums it up in verse nine, or anyone comes and, notice verse eight, preaches any other gospel than what we have preached to you. Look at verse nine preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received. Notice the gospel is preached and the gospel is received. The message is given and it's either received or it's rejected. For the Galatians, they received it. If there's another message that comes through than what he initially gave, into verse eight, let him be accursed. End of verse nine, let him be accursed. The word accursed means to be Damned to hell. It means to be eternally condemned. It means to be doomed to destruction under God's curse. It's not a little thing, is it? I mean, when you look, and, and what, again, what were they doing? They were just mixing works. But it's not a little thing, is it? And I think that should arrest our attention and, and try and look at this and go, you know what? If we try and say Jesus and anything else, then we're in a really bad position. It's Jesus and him alone for our salvation, him alone. Are there good works that come out of our life? You bet, it's the result, it's the byproduct of a life that's changed, but it's not the vehicle by which we come to know the Lord. And so this was huge, obviously, for him. Again, the gospel is that which is preached, and it's a message that is received or it is rejected. Here's some very familiar verses for us that we wanna commit to memory. Ephesians 2, eight and nine, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, let's say it together, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Again, God's grace is his favor that we don't deserve. How am I saved? It's God reaching out to offer us salvation. What's my part? Well, it's either received, notice, by faith, received or it's rejected. And we all know whether we received it or we've rejected it. I know I knew that. After I was presented with the gospel for five years, I rejected it. And I know there came a point in time where I received it, where I was open to it. And I think we all know that. That's the means by which we're saved. It's God's favor that's extended towards us. It's not by us working or trying hard enough. In John 1.12, it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And so when we receive him as our savior, when we put our trust in him, it's then that we become a child of God. Pretty simple. It really is. It's maybe just not that easy. For do I now persuade men or God, verse 10? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul wasn't a people pleaser, was he? He wasn't a, hey, who am I to judge? You know, if you wanna bring law in, I mean, who who am I to say that? Well, he was very bold, and he strikes me as very bold. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. That's what he cared about. But I don't think Paul was belligerent, you know? We wanna speak the truth, but we wanna speak it in Love, yes, we gotta have God's heart as we speak forth the truth. Paul does not strike me as belligerent. In fact, we read of him back in, I don't remember, 1 Corinthians, I think, where he said, I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And so he, he would seek to come alongside in order to be able to lift people up, lift people up and also be able to um, build that bridge between them but he wasn't a people pleaser and because of that he suffered jesus said this in john 15 20 remember the word that i said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they kept my word they will keep yours also following in the footsteps of jesus there's going to be challenging times but you're following in good footsteps you're in good company The good news is, is there will be those that will hear, and that's going to be key. So this book that we're going through is going to speak really clearly, really strongly about the grace of God, not only into salvation, but how you live the Christian life. Again, it was huge. For the time of the Protestant Reformation, in bringing people out of the works of the church system and the traditions of the church system into the truth of God's word, which is the grace of God. So I think we're in for a real treat as we go through this, all right? That's it. Why don't we go ahead and stand for a closing word of prayer? If we can pray for you, please come forward at the close of the service. Let's go ahead and thank the Lord for our time together. Father, we wanna thank you for your goodness toward us, especially for your grace. Thank you how it's so championed through your word. And uh, thank you that you you had your people, like the Apostle Paul, that was just, as zealous as he was against Christianity, he was that much and more so once he became a Christian. Thank you for him earnestly contending for the faith that was delivered to us. And I pray that you would help us understand the truth of the grace that you have extended to us. And I pray if there's any here who have never received that, that they would reach out to you today, oh Lord. And I pray also that we would just remember and recognize that real life can be had when we do it your way. I think we've all experienced when we try and do it our own way, we make a mess of things. But we know that Your yoke is easy, your burden is light, and we thank you for that. We love you, we commit ourselves afresh in Jesus' name, amen.